Thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's always weird hearing yourself being called an academic. It's not something I'm used to, I can tell you that. Uh, and for what it's worth, I think Michael pushed me more than I pushed him at seminary. So uh, and I'm thankful for Michael's friendship and uh, encouragement through that time as well. Um, that sounded really good. There's that's, that's a, that's a lot to live up to. Uh, would you just uh, pray with me as we begin our time together? And then we'll open the word. Father, as we open your word this morning, we are so conscious that, Lord, we are corrupted and uh, fallen individuals, and this affects our ability to think and understand and to know you. And so, Lord, we need your spirit to work in us, to conform our understanding to the truth, to conform our desires so that we love it and we live it. And, Lord, so that we can choose to do what is right in your eyes and honor you. And so, Father, this morning, we ask that you would bless our time together. Teach us, Lord, your ways and give to us the right understanding of you, that we would honor you as you deserve to be honored in our lives, that you would help us to do this. Father, bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but... I often find that there is this kind of rebellious streak in me. There's a sense in which, uh, and, and you know, you talk with people sometimes and you see this really clearly, you know, I don't want to submit to authority. I want to be the king in my own heart. It's almost like we read that passage in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and we say, everyone except me. Right? And it's not that we say that overtly. It's not like we... We go out of our way to be that way, but there's just this natural inclination there in our heart. And it's not just us. This is, this is something that we've experienced throughout history. In fact, in 1715, Louis XIV of France, he died, and Louis was, he called himself Louis the Great. And he was a monarch who made the infamous statement, I am the state. His court was the most magnificent in Europe, and his funeral was spectacular. His body lay in state in a golden coffin. And to dramatize the event, there had been orders given, and to dramatize really the king's greatness, orders had been given to the, that the cathedral in which the coffin was being housed should be dimly lit, with only one special candle set just above his coffin. Thousands of people, mourners, waited in silence. And, this ship, and then Bishop Massillon began to speak. And slowly he reached down and he snuffed out that candle and he said, Only God is great. You see, it doesn't matter how much we might try to make ourselves out to be great. And it doesn't matter how lofty our station in life is or how great we think in our hearts that we are. We really are as nothing. And this is really what Isaiah found in the passage that we're going to look at today. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 6, which is the passage we're going to spend our time in this morning. And in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah comes face to face with God and face to face with his own creatureliness. And he discovers here, that truth that God alone is great. 
In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says there, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity has been taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So though we think of ourselves as important and clothe ourselves to show our importance and buy things even to make other people think that we're important and we insist that other people treat us with importance, all of this is a figment of our imagination. And really, Isaiah, as he found when he stood before God, all of those things, all of those concerns, all of those thoughts, all of those conceptions of himself rapidly faded away. The reality is that we may not realize right now our insignificance compared to God. God has mercifully made himself less obvious to us because if we understood the reality of who he is, we would be in constant fear. We would be terrified and he has graciously withdrawn himself from us. But when we stand before God, as Isaiah does in this passage that we're going to read today, we will realize the greatness of his holiness. And we will realize the greatness of our sin. And we will see clearly the greatness of our need. And so today I want us in this passage today to find and discover really and to understand what it is like to stand before this holy God. And we're going to see together three realizations of being face-to-face with the Holy God. Three realizations of being face-to-face with our Holy God. And the first one is the greatness of God's holiness. The first realization, the thing we're going to recognize, is that God's holiness is great beyond our wildest imaginations. He starts off there by talking about the year of the death of the king. Literally in Hebrew, it's the year of the death of the king, Uzziah. Now, Uzziah was a king of the the southern kingdom. He was a king of Judah. And Judah, as you know, was a little more faithful uh, than, well, a lot more faithful, really, than the northern kingdom. And Uzziah's reign was particularly long and particularly prosperous. But by the time he died, trouble was brewing on the horizon. But in the reign of a prosperous king, the king could be tempted to think that it's because of him that this prosperity is coming about. And this is a trap that Uzziah fell into. 
and it went to his head. He felt that the success that he had enjoyed and his kingdom had enjoyed was a result of his good policies, his good leadership, his good skills that he had. And so this went to his head. And ultimately, it led him to take up a position that God explicitly had forbidden any king of Judah to take up. We read about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. And he says there, I'll read it out to you in verse 16. He says, when, when Uzziah had become strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. They opposed Uzziah the king, and they said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will have no honor from the Lord God. But Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in front of the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead, and they hurried him out of there, and he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and he lived in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. See, Uzziah became proud of all of his accomplishments. It went to his heart, and he exalted himself beyond the station in life that God had given to him. And he gave himself the right to enter the temple of God. This was a role, the idea of prophet, priest, and king, those three roles in the Old Testament are uniquely designed so that the role of king particularly you know, generally doesn't have all the other two roles. You have David, who is a prophet, as well as a king. You have some kings who were neither prophets nor priests. You have prophets who weren't kings, and you have priests that were prophets but not kings. But you would not get one who has all three of those roles until the Messiah comes along. And Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king to fulfill those three priestly roles. But Uzziah took upon himself this messianic role entered into the temple thinking he could mediate between himself and the people, thinking he could have direct access to God, thinking he could worship God on his terms. And he was struck by the Lord. And this is the one, in the year of his death, this king who thought of himself more highly, who had this very clear object lesson made out to him, this king dies, and in that same year, Uzziah sees this vision. And he says there, I saw Adonai, the Lord, the master. That's the idea here. I saw the master, the king, the, the king died, but then I saw the true Lord. This is not Yahweh, the covenant name for God. This is the supreme master of the universe. This is the almighty one. 
This is the one of whom John said in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. This was the one whom he was talking about. And this is one of those instances when God condescends to show himself, something of himself, to Isaiah. But as we'll see, this is not a full, clear exposure of the full glory of God. This is a, a veiled covering. But nonetheless, the impact this has on God, I mean on Isaiah rather, is profound. And he sees the Lord, he sees the master of the universe sitting on a throne. This is really interesting because the throne or the, the temple was in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, if you were to go to the temple at this point, you'd go into Solomon's temple. You wouldn't get in there to start with. But if we were able to get in there, there were two chambers. You remember that. There was a holy place and then there was the most holy place. And the priests would go into the holy place uh, daily and they would burn incense and do those things, which is what... Uzziah was taking on himself to do. But into the most holy place, nobody would go except the high priest one time per year and not without making all of the proper sacrifices to ensure that he could go in there. And when he went in there, he would not see a throne. He would see the, the Ark of the Covenant. right? So, And on the Ark of the Covenant, God would... And, at least in Moses' day, he would appear in glory over the ark. That is gone at this point, but nonetheless, that was the idea. This was the place where God would appear and be with his people, but nobody could go in there. This was the holy of holies, the most holy place. But in the place where the ark of the covenant was, in this vision, Isaiah sees a throne. Not a mediating piece of uh, furniture that you know is there to remind the Israelites, of their covenant with Yahweh, but instead the throne. And he is sitting upon it. The real king, the true master, not the usurper, not the one who wants to take on roles that God has not given to him, but the true king is sitting in his rightful place in the temple as ruler, not only of Jerusalem, or of Judah, or of Israel, but of all the earth. The point here is really this, that rulers come and go, but God remains ruler of all. And Isaiah here, I'm going to mix up between Uzziah and Isaiah, Isaiah here is seeing this supreme ruler sitting on his throne, and it says he is lofty and exalted. That means that he is seated really above every king, and the the language, the Hebrew language here is such that it's, you know, of his own accord, God is lofty. God is exalted. Right? He doesn't need a group of people. You know, in the old days, uh, if you were a king, you would have a, a number of uh, really strong guys and you'd get a shield and those dudes would hold that shield and you would have your throne on top of it and that would be them holding you up. That's not happening here. God, by his own right, by his own being, by his own glory and power, is exalted and uplifted here. He is seated above all. Now, it's interesting that this is the same language, exactly the same phrase, used later in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. And he's talking there and introducing Isaiah 52, this, the, you know, Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is about the suffering servant which is a pointer down the track to Christ. And here in Isaiah 52, he says, 
the same thing of this servant. My servant is high and lifted up. Exactly the same phrasing, exactly the same Hebrew wording. And so what he's seeing here is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. We can further demonstrate this from John 12 verse 41, where John explains that, that uh, Isaiah said these things, this is down in verse 8, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So John is pointing back to this time and saying that what Isaiah is seeing is the pre-incarnate Christ. And it is Christ who is lofty and exalted. This is the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. So when you go to John 17, and Jesus says, Father, give to me the glory I had with you before the world began. Here is Isaiah seeing a glimpse of that glory. We see there that the train of his robe is filling the temple. And his train here really represents that place where the transcendent God touches the earth. It's not God on the earth, but certainly his clothing is. But the train really is long. And the reason for that is that in ancient times, the length of the train would give an indication of the greatness of the kingdom that that king ruled over. And here it says the train of his robe was filling the temple. This is a long, long robe to indicate that God is supremely glorious. Notice that God himself is not described. Whereas you go to Ezekiel or you go to Revelation, you get this description and this kind of, you know, representing bright stones radiating and things like that. God himself here is not described. Where he's sitting is described. The train of his robe is described. Isaiah does not feel free to lift his eyes particularly high. He's not dwelling, sitting there, looking on the glory of the God, of, of the God, as if this is a wonderful sight to behold. See, not only is God's presence being seen, he's not only seeing a, a vision here, this is he's feeling this, he's experiencing this. This is an intense moment for Isaiah. This is something that grips him to his very core. It says in verse 2 that seraphim stood above him. Seraphim there, this is a Hebrew plural, which is why you get the I-M on the end. A seraph is a singular, a seraphim is more than one. These are ones who are literally burning ones. So again, even here, there's not a real strong description of what they are. They just seem to be burning individuals. Now, fire, of course, as you'll know in the scriptures, is a symbol of the holiness of God. You'll go back to Moses and Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 3. And Moses saw God in a burning bush, right? The bush was on fire. You'll remember, of course, that in the Exodus, as the Israelites were leaving and as they were going out and into the desert, that God appeared to them at night and in fire and during the day in smoke. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, it says that God is a consuming fire. Not only that, but in Le Leviticus chapter 10, when Nadab and Abihu went to offer unauthorized fire before the Lord, they went to do the same kind of thing that Uzziah went to do. Fire consumed them and destroyed them. And these ones here are burning. These ones here are holy. They're continually in God's presence. And this fire, this burning is an indication of their own holiness. 
But in spite of their own burning, their own holiness, their own glowing, they are covering their faces. They dare not look at the Lord. The first two wings covering the face indicates that while they can't look on God and His holiness, their ears are attentive to His word. They're listening to what He would have them do. These are finite creatures, just like you and I. There's this recognition that God is something completely different to a created being. We aren't even in the same category. And even these burning ones, even these holy individuals that stand over the presence of God continually, even these ones will not look upon his glory. Two of their wings were also covering their feet. There's a lot of debate about what this means. But one commentator indicated they did this to, to, uh, to show that they would not walk in their own ways. They're guarding their feet, a little bit like in Psalm chapter 1, where it says that, you know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, because he's guarding his way and he's walking in the ways of the Lord. And not only that, but the, the other two wings are flying. And these, this indicates, again, they're not wanting to touch the ground. Just like the ground and the presence of the Lord was holy for Moses, so too the ground and the presence of God in this vision is holy for these creatures. And so they won't touch the ground. But not only that, they are not idle in God's presence. They are continuously active. They are fulfilling their purpose. They are glorifying God. And what they say is significant. It says, they cry out to one another and they cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They continually call out what is obvious to them. Can you imagine being in the presence of God and whenever you take a moment to just think, all you can think of is holy, such that it comes out in what you say. That's what's going on here. In fact, in Revelation chapter 4, there's this same scene poured out. And it says that day and night they do not cease to cry it out. Because it's not like they just look at God and then they're over it. It's not like going to the Grand Canyon. I don't know about you. You're into the Grand Canyon and you go there and, and you look at it and you go, wow, that is a big hole in the ground. And you sort of pace up and down the rim for a bit, you know, and you just marvel at the, the depth of it and maybe the, you know, the ravines on the other side of the river. And you're blown away by those things. But then you go, well, it's lunchtime. We should probably head off now. That's not what happens here. They, that sense of awe does not wear off. And so the obvious fact that stands in front of them, overwhelms them, occupies their all, their mind, their desires, and their volition. Everything is employed by this reality that stands before them. See, God is separate from his creation in his greatness, in his majesty, in power, in his presence, and in sovereignty. And it's when we stand before him, we get to see this and experience it firsthand. Not only that, but it says there, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who cried out while the temple was filling with smoke. The foundations shaking indicates the, really the weight of his presence and the call of the seraphim. 
Have you ever been to a, a rock concert? I'm sure you haven't, right? You're all good living people. But uh, I've been to a few places like that where they have music and they turn it right up. You've probably been there, I'm sure. Have you ever st- stood in front of the speakers when they do that and had the feeling go through your body as those, you know, they turn it up way too loud. You've got to take earplugs, right? But you can feel the reverberation of the music through your body. That's kind of what's going on here. The, the music, just like the music is not just moving through the air, but moves through the things in between it and the, and the you know, other people behind you. So here, the, this sound and this vision is really moving not just the, the person of Isaiah, but Isaiah himself and the, and the building and the stones. And if you know anything about the temple in Jerusalem, you know that it's primarily built on a large rock, right? And Isaiah, it seems from this, is standing on the threshold or just behind the threshold, still within the holy place, not within the holy of holies, not going into it, but just on that edge. And he's seeing the whole scene in front of him and feeling the, the floor underneath him, up underneath him shaking and quivering. And at the same time, the house was filling with smoke to veil the fullness of God's glory and being. See, Isaiah here has seen this vision, but the reality is that because of all of these things that are going on and his own response to what he sees, he is unable to really take in the fullness of this presence. But this is what strikes him as he sees God, is this scene and the holiness of God, the separateness of God, the distinction of God from all creatures. This stands out to him, and immediately he recognizes the greatness of God's holiness. And this greatness of God's holiness is just staggering. But that's not where it finishes. Because recognizing the greatness of God's holiness forces him to come face to face with another reality, and that is the greatness of his sin. And so the second reality of being face to face with God is the recognition that we are sinners, that, that God's holiness reveals to us how sinful we really are. And it's not that he has to think about this. He's not dwelling on this going, I wonder I wonder what God would have me do right now. There is an immediacy here. And it's not just Isaiah that has this. This is another theme that comes up over and over in Scripture. You'll remember, of course, in Mark 5, the man with the unclean spirit who, wouldn't, who could not be bound. Remember, he lived in the tombs. And as soon as Jesus comes up in the boat and rests at the shore, this man sees him and he rushes before him and he's saying, what do we have to do with you, son of God? Have you come to destroy me or have you come to torment me? And he's begging him, don't torment me. You see, this man, this individual, even as he's seeing Jesus, he's recognizing him for who he is. And this is Christ in his non-incarnate state. This is why well, it is incarnate state, and it is not yet glorified state. And this demon possessed man recognizes this. Or you could go to this, the time when Peter threw the, you know, threw the net over. Wait, they were fishing all night, caught nothing. Jesus says, throw the nets over. They throw the nets over. He grabs this huge haul of fish, and Peter is stunned. And he says, Get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Or the time in the in the boat where they were, in Matthew chapter 8, where they were crossing the, the, the Sea of Galilee. And they were concerned that the, the storm was going to overturn their boat. 
and they were taking in water. And they said, Lord, do you not care that we're going to perish? And the Lord stood up and he said to the water and to the wind, peace be still. And it's not like the the wind kept blowing for another 15 minutes but just eased off slowly. No. Suddenly there was just quiet. All the waves just went down. The wind disappeared instantly. And the men in the boat were more afraid of the man in the boat than the storm that had been outside the boat. They were terrified. And they said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? You see, when we get to realize and recognize the reality of who God is, and we recognize the greatness of God, there is an immediate recognition of who we are. And the fact that we are not clean, not right to stand in his presence. That moment comes and we are instantly apparent of what we really are. And it's instantly apparently apparent here to Isaiah that he is a sinner. In fact, so apparent that in verse 5 he says, Woe is me, I am ruined. The Hebrew wording here is really to say, you know, has this idea of being destroyed or ceasing. This comes from a word meaning to be silent, and it's frequently used to describe the scene after a battle. So if you remember the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, Jeremiah writes about this in Jerusalem, and he's describing the silence there after the walls have fallen, after the destruction of the city, when all the cries and screams are kind of there, but they're kind of distant because there's so much carnage and pain. But there is this silence because the life that used to exist in that city is no more. This is what Isaiah is declaring of himself. That's his state. Where once there was this idea that, yeah, I had life, there's a reality now that because of This reality, I am undone. I have no way out. I am ruined. And notice that this is Isaiah condemning himself. This is not God calling out and saying, Isaiah, how dare you come into my presence, you filthy sinner. It's not that. This is Isaiah. He can't help but realize the situation. God hasn't even said a thing yet. And he realizes that he is condemned. It's interesting to note here that Isaiah does not go into detail about the worst of sins to say, Lord, I've, I've stolen things. I'm a murderer. What he condemns himself for is what he says. And we would we would probably not think a whole lot of this. Because what we say, we say things all the time, and we don't really, often we just don't think much about it. But what he has in mind here is, you know, bad language, that kind of thing. These are the sins of the unclean lips. You know, this includes things like bad language or cussing, uh, deceit or lying, blasphemy, slander, malicious talk, gossip, coarse joking. Words even spoken out of turn and in haste. He's not thinking about the heavy sin that he's committed. He's thinking just the lightest sin. And bear in mind that Isaiah is probably a righteous man. 
He's probably one who abides by the law. And this is part of the reason God is probably calling him to ministry. So it's not the big sins that we ought to be aware of, and we will be aware of when we stand face to face with God, but it's even the smallest sins. Isaiah condemns himself for the smallest of sins. And all this just because he saw God. He's not yet been judged. He hasn't yet had, you know, every sin examined. God hasn't even spoken yet. He's just standing in the presence of God. And here's the realization for us. That we often don't realize that we're sinners. We go about our lives without even a thought for it. But that does not change the objective reality. See, knowledge of sin, or knowledge of God rather, and knowledge of self go together. Calvin opens the institutes of the Christian religion by saying there are two things, the knowledge of self and the knowledge of God, and which one comes first is hard to know. Because the reality is if we really truly know ourselves, then we learn something about God. And if we really truly understand who God is, then we see the reality about who we are. Right? We can have false knowledge, but true knowledge comes with the knowledge of God as well. And so if we knew God, and the better we know God, the more clearly we're going to see our sin. And the more we know God, the more we're going to tremble and fear because of it. The more clearly we understand God, the more we're going to hasten to be rid of sin. So one of the reasons for our lack of holiness today, our lack of desire to be pure and clean in the eyes of God, is that we have a low view of God. And I would argue that Isaiah is learning here exactly the same thing. It's not that we have a low view of God because we go out of our way to have a low view of God, but that we just really don't understand the reality and fullness of who he is. But it's not only his own sin. It's not only that he's a sinner in his own right. He carries on. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Not only is he guilty because he's committed sin, but he's guilty by association. He's guilty by position. He's also guilty, of course, by volition. But ultimately, he's guilty by God's immeasurable standard of holiness. And like Isaiah, we share in that guilt. We are guilty, too, of slander, blasphemy, malicious talk, gossip, backbiting, coarse joking, speaking out of turn, lying, and many things far worse than this. We all share in this. And Isaiah here abandoned himself without any hope. Let me pause for a moment and just ask you, have you ever been, have you ever seen your sin like this? Have you ever been humbled like Isaiah is here? Do you still hold on to your rights? Or do you see yourself as undone? Has the Lord gripped your heart like this and caused you to surrender everything to him like it did with Isaiah? Do you see yourself like Isaiah comes to in this passage as one who is here to serve God in whatever vocation he calls you to? Or do you see yourself as still of yourself and belonging to your own ways and thoughts and desires? I invite you to bow before this supreme being this morning who is set apart by his perfection. Because none of us can hide. 
There is now still time. He sees you now for what you are. He sees each of us. He knows all your secrets. How does that make you feel? There's a story of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. wrote a number of books. You're probably familiar with them. But he decided one day to play a practical joke on 12 of his friends. And he sent them all a telegram back in the days of telegrams. And it said, flee at once. All is discovered. Within 24 hours, all 12 had left the country. You know why? Because they thought the authorities knew their secrets. They thought this was an opportunity to escape, to flee, to be saved. And they fled the country. The reality is for us that our secrets are not secrets to God. And when we stand before God, we will realize just how exposed we are. We will realize the completeness of our nakedness. And we will feel that vulnerability. And it will be an utter helplessness, just like it is for Isaiah here. It will be uncomfortable. It will be undesirable. And so just like Isaiah, we too will discover the reality of who we are. But praise God, God does not leave us there. Because not only do we discover the greatness of God's holiness and the greatness of our sin, but we also discover the greatness of our need and perhaps more importantly, the greatness of God's ability to meet that need. Declaring himself doomed, Isaiah recognizes his helpless situation and he knows he can't run, he knows he can't hide, he knows he can't cover his tracks, he knows he cannot escape the obvious and evident judgment that he deserves. And so he simply declares his own destruction. But as in any great epic, that is not the end of the story. God provides what he needs. He needs cleansing. He needs forgiveness. He needs change. And that starts with God. And God does not leave him there. God provides him with a means of cleansing. Just like with Abraham, when God provided the, the ram caught in the thicket so that he could sacrifice that instead of his son at just the moment he needed it, so too with Isaiah, God provides just what he needs at just that moment. And so it says there, verse 6, One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. So again, we go back to the idea of fire, burning coal in his hands. Fire does not merely indicate the judgment of God, the wrath of God, but also it's used here in this sense to purify. So God put cherubim in the garden with flaming swords to guard it. God set fire on Sodom and Gomorrah, and God sent fire into the camp of Israel to destroy them. And so this was again reminding him of that judgment. That judgment is, you know, is being brought to bear again on this, on Isaiah. This particular coal, though, was taken from the altar. The altar, of course, as you remember in the Old Testament, was where the sacrifices were made for sin. And so here, there's this expectation or this anticipation, if you like, this empty altar that points forward to Christ, who would ultimately be that sacrifice. But here, that coal is taken from that altar, where God accepted blood sacrifices to cover sin where God was satisfied with the substitution of another. And it's taken and it's applied to his lips. 
is applied to the exact place where he needs cleansing. It's applied to his lips, where he, he, the very sin he is guilty of, God here is atoning for it. And instantly he's made clean before God. See, God doesn't use live coals for us, but there is still forgiveness available. Today, God provides us with a means of cleansing, Christ. Christ gave himself and took on himself the due penalty of our sin. But then he was raised from the dead for our justification, as it says in Romans 4.25. And because of what Christ has done, we too can have cleansing Today, God did not leave us without an opportunity to be cleansed from our sin. God has provided what we need. Isaiah didn't do anything for his cleansing. All that was required was an understanding of who God is. The reality of that truth is what had to hit him. That brought a recognition of his guilt and a desire to be freed from sin. And oh, what a desire it was in that moment. And he saw God, and he declared his own destruction. See, our greatest need is cleansing from sin. Our greatest need is not a better car, a nicer house, a home by the ocean or in the mountains. Those things are nice, but our greatest need is cleansing from sin. And by comparison, nothing else matters. See, when Isaiah stands before God, he's not thinking of his country home or his boat or his... I hope nobody has one of these, a Rolls Royce, Audi, something like that. You know, he's not thinking of the things he has in this life. Suddenly, all of this life fades into insignificance. And what's honing his thought is exactly the same thing that is focusing the seraphim. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Likewise, we too, just like Isaiah, can do nothing for our cleansing. All that is required from us is an understanding of who God is, a recognition and confession of our guilt before him, and a turning from sin to life, putting off the sinful ways that have preoccupied us and putting on the, the, the things that please the Lord. And so you can see from this that repentance is a natural response. When we see this sight, when we understand who God is and we receive that justification, the natural response is just like Isaiah in verse 8. Here I am, send me. Rather than living for myself, rather than doing what pleases me, now I'm focused on what pleases the Lord. That doesn't mean we all have to quit our jobs, go to seminary, become pastors. It means that whatever we are doing, we're doing it all to the glory of God. And so what we see here when we come face to face with God is really the greatness of God's holiness the greatness of our sin, the greatness of our need and God's ability to meet that need. And we learn, like Louis XIV, that our pomp and pride are as nothing. God alone is indeed great. A response is required of us from this passage. If God is really holy, as this vision describes, if you are a sinner, as this makes clear, and if Christ has come to save us from our sins, then we have a response we have to make. We should repent of our sins, confess God's greatness, confess his holiness, 
and ask him to meet our greatest need. So even if we don't see it, we have this sin. We have this reality. And here's the thing. If we will not bow the knee now, this vision teaches us that we will bow the knee. There is no escaping it. See, this is the thing. Isaiah was just going along, and then suddenly he was face to face with God. That will be the reality of every one of us. We will all stand before God. We will all be in the situation that Isaiah is in. And we will all see our sinfulness. But now, now we have an opportunity to bow the knee now so that we can be cleansed from our sin. And this might sound all very hard and heavy. And But what would you think of a doctor, you know, who when they discovered that you had a tumor buried deep in your body said, well, that's okay, just take two aspirin, you'll be fine. Or a fireman who responded to a three-alarm fire by saying, oh, it'll probably burn itself out soon enough, no need to take any action. Or a policeman who arrives at the scene of uh, some sort of violence. He arrives and he shakes his head and just says, well, boys will be boys. In each case, the response is inappropriate to the situation. Having been confronted with an understanding of the majestic holiness of God this morning, what will be your response? It's not appropriate to not care, and not to mention that not caring is damning to the soul. If you're saved this morning, let me encourage you to allow this vision to have the same effect it had on Isaiah. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Pray with me. Our Lord and God, we are humbled this morning by your greatness. Our desire, Father, is to honor you, to glorify you. You are a God who is worthy of that glory. And Lord, we so often make the mistake of giving ourselves all the glory. Lord, forgive us for this, we pray. Change our hearts, Lord. Give to us a clear and fresh understanding of who you are, that we would see the reality of who we are, that we could respond appropriately, that we could see ourselves as your creatures, that we could give ourselves as your slaves, that you would be so great in our understanding, even though that is far less than the reality of your greatness, that we would do all we can and all we have in this life to give glory to you. Work in us for this end, we pray. We cannot do this without your intervention. Change our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.